Hey guys, it's good to be with you all tonight. My name is John Trapp. I'm the RUF campus minister here at Texas. And um, we are starting a new series called Renewing Relationships. And um, we're not only going to talk about dating, um, so if that topic freaks you out, um, be, be of good cheer. We are going to talk about um, all different kinds of relationships, friendships, uh, we're going to talk about marriage, we're going to talk about singleness, we're going to talk about sex, we're going to talk about all kinds of fun stuff. And uh, we'll do that throughout the, uh, until the rest of the semester. I'm really excited about doing that with you guys. Um, as I've been thinking about this topic, um, the topic of relationships, I've been struck with how much relationships actually consume like every part of our life. It consumes our thoughts, our time. Like, think, about, think about how much time you spend thinking about texting on social media, or whatever, like with your friends or your family. Think about when you, like when you go home and your family wants to hang out with you, but your friends want to hang out with you, but like you want to go see like the person from your church or the person from your school, and like you just feel pulled in like a thousand different directions because relationships take so much of our time. Relationships are what most of all of our great literature is about. It's, it's what most of our movies and stories that we tell are about. It's what our, like, all of our songs are about relationships. We are, r- relationships consume us. I, I, was, I was thinking about this, and, like, my kids are listening to music, and I was thinking about, like, even kids, like, Barney is about relationships. I love you, you love me. Like, that, it's everywhere. And the Bible suggests that the reason for that is because it's what you were made for. You are made for relationships, but the problem for us is that relationships often just don't work. Not only that, but relationships hurt us. And not ju- I'm not just talking about dating relationships. I just mean, in general, what we carry along with us in relationships is something called shame. And that's what I want to talk about with you guys tonight. And just to kind of tee it off, I want to, like, part of as I've like been thinking about, so there's a, a book that I would, this is like the most intense book title ever. It's called The Soul of Shame. Whoa, right? But uh, <laughs> this is actually a fantastic book that I've been reading. Um, it's, a, it's by a guy who, uh, his, he's um, a psychiatrist, so he understands like the neuroscience behind shame, that there's actually like chemical things that happen in your brain um, from shame. And as I've been reading this, as I've been thinking about this, as I've been studying Genesis 3, I've been thinking about my own story and how much my own life has been shaped by shame. So I grew up in a small town in Alabama called Tuscumbia. Like podunk, small town, 8,000 people. All my friends drove trucks and hunted on the weekends. The blue-collar farm town. And I was different. Like, all my friends' parents, like, they maybe went to Alabama, most likely went to the community college or just high school. Like, my mom and dad went to Vanderbilt. And my friends, even though I grew up in Tuscumbia, they always just called me City Boy. Like, that's what they call me, City Boy. (laughs) And I didn't have the accent that they had. And I, I didn't hunt, didn't fish. And... I was always, so, so what I did um, 
is I just kind of lived in fear constantly that people would think that I was a wimp. And um, I had a, a really sweet family, um, but my brother and sister were about a lot older than me. And so I was, kind of, I was kind of the youngest child, but kind of the only child. And so I spent a lot of time um, alone. And my brother and sister were both pretty rebellious. And so I was like, okay, the way that I'm going to like, I'm just going to go the complete opposite. And I'm just going to get attention and to get affirmation and love. I'm going to like work really hard at school. I'm going to pour myself into things like sports because I really like sports. I'm going to do sports all the time. Or I'm going to try to be really funny so people will like me. And I mean... It, I would pour myself into anything that I could kind of find that maybe I was a little bit good at. And all those things became things that hopefully were going to let me hide and not let anyone find out how scared I was. How scared I was of someone thinking that I didn't measure up. How scared I was of guys not thinking I was cool or girls not thinking I was funny, or my mom not thinking I was lovable, or my dad not thinking I was worthy. And I don't think, I couldn't have articulated that when I was in middle school and high school, but looking back now as a 32-year-old man, I, so much of my life has been shaped by the fear that someone would know the real me and not want me. living with shame. And here's the thing. The Bible says that's all of our story. That all of us live with shame. And the thing about shame is that it does, it, it tears apart the very thing that we were made for. So this is what I want to look at tonight. I want to look at the way you were made. First point would be the way you were made. Second, what shame does, and third, the way out. The way you were made, what shame does, and the way out. And tonight, the, the topic for the sermon is renewing shame. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, you know everything about us. And that is a sentence that can stop us in our tracks. That is scary to know that there is someone who knows everything about us. Lord, would you shine the light of your truth into our life tonight? And I pray that these students would see that even though you know everything about them, that you offer them love and grace. And I pray for the person who's in this room who has experienced very shaming things in their life. I pray for the one who has done shameful things to others. I pray that no matter where we are, that you would meet us in our shame tonight, Lord, and that we might see the good news of who Jesus is and how he speaks into and renews our shame. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first off, the way you were made... This is what the Bible claims. You can take it or leave it, but I'm just going to tell you, this is what the, what the Bible says is that you fundamentally, at your core, the thing that you were most made for is relationships. It's, that's it. You were made for relationships. 
And here's why I suggest that. Because the first thing we find out about people in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, the first chapter, the first introduction of man, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God creates man in his own image. Now we have to stop and think about that. Because this is what that's saying. God, when he creates him, he says this, let us make man in our image. Now that's interesting. Who is God talking to? Let us make man in our image. I, I think this is a conversation that's happening between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is what's true about each one of you individuals. You're made in the image of an us. You individually are made in the image of an us. Now, have you ever stopped to think, like, what was God doing before he created everything? Well, that'll keep you up at night, right? Don't think too long about that, but, like, maybe you can if you want, but you'll never go to sleep tonight. Anyway, um, God for eternity, existed for eternity. Again, whoa. But what the scriptures say is God to his core, if you want to know who he is, 1 John 4 Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What is he to his core? He is love. And so think about this. For eternity, God existed and he is love. But he existed as three persons. And these three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, had a perfect relationship. A perfect relationship of love. Now what does a perfect relationship of love look like? It looks like each single person in that relationship most caring for and most being concerned about the good of the other. God, in his essence, in his essence, he's oriented towards the other. He is oriented for the good of the Father and the Father for the good of the Son and the Son for the good of the Spirit. God, in his essence, is oriented for the good and the glory of the other. And so... What that means is that as an image bearer of God, what you were made for is to be oriented towards the good of others. This is why when someone's like, hey, Jesus, can you sum up the law? Like, what's the greatest law? And he's like, I'll tell you. You can sum it all up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love and love. Love God, love others. That's it. All the law can be summed up as that. Love. Because it's what you were made for. And it's who God is. And if you don't believe me, just think about some of the scientific data that backs this up. If, in 1988, the, the, the New York Times, this, they published this study where in, um, in hospitals, uh, in the, in, you know what a NICU is, the neonatal intensive care units where like little preemies are placed? And for a long time, what hospitals would do is they would place these um, newborns into like the little bubble. Our son was uh, a, a NICU baby for two months. And so they just like put him in this plastic bubble. But for a long time, the theory was like, don't touch them, don't disturb them. And this one doctor came along and he started doing something different. He, would, he had his nurses massage the babies for 15 minutes a day, three times a day. Just touch them. Let them touch your skin. 
Listen to this. Babies who experience human interaction for 45 minutes a day, on average, were discharged six days earlier than the other babies. They gained weight at a rate of 47% faster than the other babies. Eight months later, they were more developed psychologically, mentally, physically. They, and, and by the way, they got out of the hospital six days earlier, so it saved the hospitals like $3,000 per kid. Simple human touch. Um, a similar study happened after um, uh, Romania ceased to be a communist nation and people were able to come in and aid workers were able to come in and they found these orphanages with over 100,000 infants and small children living in these orphanages. And here's the thing. All of those orphanages had the proper medical care, they had the hygiene, the orphans were all fed, but they received no human interaction from their caretakers. Many of them were left in their crib for days at a time because they simply did not have enough people to go around and hold these babies. And the death rate for these infant babies who were getting all the food they needed, all the medicine they needed, all the hygiene they needed, some of them were dying at a death rate of 33% in these orphanages. And many of them experienced lifelong, lifelong ramifications for the way they were raised. Um, just this past year, a study was done, and, it's, and they discovered that if you're obese, so like, the worst, like one of the worst things that could happen to you, uh, or not the worst, one of, one of the worst things for your health is obesity. Like that can really make you die early at an early age. Um, if you are obese, you have a 30% chance of dying earlier than if you're not. Did you know that, what, that there is one greater health risk, though, for dying early? Loneliness. Loneliness. Listen to this. This is also from the New York Times. If you're obese, you're 30% more likely to die young. Only one condition is more dangerous to your health, being lonely will call, give you a 50% more likely chance of dying young. Loneliness. Because it's what you were made for, what you were made for is relationships, human interaction. It's why this dude named Ken Seidel, who lives in New York City, do you want to know what his job is? He's a professional cuddler. You heard me right. His job, he gets paid $80 an hour to cuddle with people. If being a pastor doesn't work out, no, no, no I'm not going to do that. But that's a pretty good rate of return, I'm just saying. Because New York City is the most packed, busy city in the United States, but it's also one of the most lonely places in the world. And you've got all of these people who actually are just dying for someone to touch them in a safe way. Right. <laughs> but who are dying... Who are dying for someone to touch them. Listen to what one of his clients says. Look up professional cuddling. There's this video about it. It's, it's very interesting. The dude is like super granola and hilarious and awesome. But listen to what she says. She says, I feel when, when I'm being cuddled. She says, I feel like I matter. And then she stops. She kind of like catches herself in the interview. And she's, she's like, that might have been too deep, but that's honestly how I feel. 
Cuddling can make you do can, cuddling can make you do that. It can make you feel like a human being when you feel invisible to the rest of the world. And is that not our great fear? To be invisible. To be alone. To not be known. Look, the picture of Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 2, the last thing, before, we, before David read Genesis 3, the thing that happens right before that passage where sin enters the world is this, this verse. This is the verse that precedes that passage. Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, in the Bible, nakedness is a picture of being completely exposed. Everything being known about you. You're not hiding anything. And what Adam and Eve are experiencing in the garden is full disclosure and full acceptance and love. And that's what you were made for. What we, what we want most at our core is to be, is to be known and loved. But what shame does, second point, how shame destroys us, what shame does is it prevents us from being known and loved. Listen to what Kurt Thompson says in this book I was telling you about. He says, the purpose of shame is to dismantle us as individuals and communities and destroy all of God's creation. Whoa, that's an intense claim. To dismantle us as individuals and communities and destroy all of God's creation. And look, I know that sounds strong, but think about what's the first thing that Adam, do, Adam and Eve do when they sin. Did you, know, did you catch it? They sin, and then they immediately notice they're naked. Shame enters the world. It's the first result of the fall. The first result of sin. Shame on Adam and Eve. And they cover themselves up. They make clothes for themselves. They cover. They hide themselves from one another, and they also hide from God when he comes walking to find them. They hide from each other, and they hide from God, and that's what shame does to us too. And look, just to be clear, there is a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt, guilt is, is feeling bad about something you've done. It's like, behavior, it's like based on your behavior. Like, I feel guilty for that. Shame isn't feeling bad for what, you've done, what you have done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. I feel bad about who I am to my core. And so there's three things that shame does. It makes us judge, it makes us hide, and it makes us isolate. You see this in this passage. They judge, they hide, and they isolate. Look, are you a judgmental person? The answer is yes for all of us, by the way. We all judge each other and we also judge ourselves constantly. You are constantly judging yourself, measuring yourself, asking yourself, how am I doing? How am I doing compared to everyone else? You're judging them because I want to make sure I'm doing better than her or him or whatever. This is, again, from Kurt Thompson. This is what he says. Shamed people shame people. People who are shamed in turn shame. Shamed people shame people. Long before we are criticizing others, the source of that, of that criticism has been planted, fertilized, and grown in our own lives. Directed at ourselves, 
and often in ways we are mostly unaware of. As I've been thinking about, like, where do I see shame in my own life, it's just, it became crystal clear to me just this week. Um, and I am terrified of people thinking that I'm wrong. I, I am so afraid of that. And so, if my dear wife, Chrissy, some of y'all know Chrissy, um, you should meet her, she's here somewhere. Where are you, Chrissy? She's right back there. Sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to talk about this, but I usually do that, but this is nothing bad. Um, but, um, y'all, if Chrissy ever says anything to me about, like, hey, like, why'd you do that? Or, like, you should, that was kind of mean, or that was kind of not thoughtful. It's like, it's like I go into, like, full combat Rambo mode and have to, like, just <laughs> shoot down, like, every reason that she might have given me for, like, why I was kind of being a turd to whoever and it's totally justified. But what I feel like I have to do is explain myself. And, make, and I make excuse after excuse after excuse because deep down, I am so scared of being wrong because if I think that if I'm wrong, I won't be lovable. That I won't be okay. That I won't be good. And so what I end up doing is I get critical of her criticism. See, my judgmentalism of her, my criticism of her criticism, shows me that I am someone who is living under shame. Because what I practice daily is criticism of myself. And so, of course, it flows out of me. And that's what you do, too. Look, some of you are totally ruthless with yourself. The inner dialogue that goes on in your head is merciless. What about, think about like when you leave a party and you like said something stupid that wasn't funny or like you weren't very, you weren't feeling like outgoing that night. It's okay. Maybe you're an introvert, but you're just like feeling terrible because you weren't, you just weren't on. You know what? I think that's why I think that's why it's so tempting to just like get blackout drunk before a party because it's like, I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with my own awkwardness, so I'm just going to forget about it because I'm ashamed and I'm scared. Or even think about, do you know what I do? This is a little bit of disclosure. Like when someone texts you and you want to text back, but you're trying to think of something kind of funny to text, and so you start to type and you're like, oh crap, they see like the three dots. And they know that I'm texting, and so, like, I've got to, like, hurry up. So you, like, backspace really quick and, like, get out of the text so that you can, like, plan. You all do this, don't you? We all do. I do. So you get, maybe, maybe I just do it. But you get, you back out of the text, and you think about it, and then you're like, okay, now I can get back in. Because I want them to think that I'm, like, you know, popping off because I'm witty. Because I'm, fun, but like, because we're afraid to be awkward. We're afraid that if. They see those dots for too long, and then we come with, like, some weak sauce joke that we're just, that we suck, that we're lame. Some of you are ruthless with yourself about your body. You're so, you, you experience so much shame about that. 
and the inner dialogue about what you eat or how you look or how you've exercised is so destructive and is so merciless. Some of you, some of you have shame about the privilege that you've been given. You have been born into privilege and you just feel guilty about it all the time. Not guilt, you feel shame about it all the time. And so you spend your life thinking about what, how can I make the biggest impact in the world? And it's not really because you want to make a big impact in the world. It's because you want to feel like you actually have been meaningful in some way because then that'll actually justify your life because you'll be okay and you will have used the privilege that you've been given because you're terrified of it and you feel shame for it. What shame does is it tells you you aren't worthy. You aren't worthy of love. And y'all, is this not what the great deceiver would absolutely want for God's image bearers to think? Look, this is why the Dursleys are infuriating. How's that for a transition? This is what Harry Potter, you know what I'm talking about. All right. The Dursleys are infuriating because they have the greatest wizard in the history of the world and they've stuck him under their staircase. And all they're doing all the time is telling him how, how terrible and awful he is. When in him is this great power. And that is exactly how shame works with you. Because you bear the image of the God who created everything. You bear the image of a triune God. And what the evil one wants you to think is that you're not worthy. And so what our shame does is it makes us hide. Look, this is what Adam and Eve do. They hide from God and they hide from others. And it's literally what we do with one another too. Have you ever been on like an online dating service and looked at people's profiles? I helped my friend make his online dating profile. It was so fun. He came over and like, Chris and I poured some wine and we're like, all right, we're going to do this. Online dating profile, here we go. Um, but what we end up doing is we just tell everyone the good things about ourselves. Or think about like how much time you spend getting ready for that first date. Get your eyebrows, you know, on fleek. <laughs> Guys, like you probably put on a clean shirt. Um, like you sp- but think about how much time you spend because w- we hide behind all this stuff that we put out there. Because we're afraid if someone actually knew us that they would reject us. That's why the, uh, I was listening to NPR, um, and they were doing this story on this dating website called Settle for Love. And the premise of the website is you tell everyone, instead of telling everyone the good things about you, you tell them the bad stuff about you. And you're encouraged to post, like, kind of a crappy picture of yourself. And just so, like, you can be real. And this is from the story, this is the... Um, the profile of Paul Miller, who he read his profile on the show. He says, my pro, he, he has his pros and his cons. My pros, I love to cook. I'm wild for movies. I'm resourceful. My cons, I have social anxiety, questionable dress sense. I'm visually impaired in my left eye, and I have three testicles. <laughs> that is his profile. Now, think about this. Apparently, it's a cis. Stop thinking about it. All right. But... Think about this. 
how terrified would you be to fill out that profile? And even, I think it's interesting that the website is called Settle for Love, because what does that suggest? That if someone were to know the real you, that it would be settling. Because the real us isn't that great. What we all, this is, Tim Keller says this, what we all want, he's a pastor in New York, what we all want is to be known and loved. But most of us have just settled for being loved. Because we're afraid to be known. To be known and not loved is the most terrifying thing in the world. And so what we'll take instead is to just be loved even though we're not known, which is so shallow. Because what we think is if we were actually known, we couldn't be loved. Because we're ashamed of ourselves. And so what our shame does is it makes us isolate. We hide behind, we hide behind whatever, our trying to be funny or our busyness or having everything all together. But what all of that stuff ends up doing is it makes us isolate from each other the third thing shame does. It makes us isolate. There's this huge study that was just done by the American College Health Institute, and they surveyed thousands of college students, and they recorded that 60% of college students said, 60%, that they felt very lonely. Very lonely. 60%. We're isolated because of our shame. And the sad thing is what we were made for is the complete opposite. We were made in the image of a God who's oriented towards the other. And so that's what you were made for, too, to live in community, to live in relationship. But instead, we hide and we isolate. So what is the way out? What's the way out of shame? One of the most famous TED Talks is by a woman named Brene Brown. She is um, a researcher in the field of social work. And she was trying to understand... She was like, okay, everyone in my field knows that like, what people live for is connection. And she's not, this, this woman is not like a, a Christian therapist who's doing this. She is a scientist, a researcher. And she's like, what is this thing that is, like, we know that we're made for connection, but there's something that she kept bumping against in her research that she, she wasn't sure what it was that was keeping people from connecting with one another until she finally discovered and named it shame. It's shame. And so then she said, my goal was to figure out how, like, how, what's the way out? And so, so she, she spent years researching, and what she discovered is this, the way out of shame is vulnerability. The way out of shame is actually to let yourself be known. But is that not terrifying? How the question then is, okay, well, that's great, but like, how can I actually do that? Because if anyone really knew me, I'm pretty sure that they would reject me. And what I want you to see is how God moves towards people who are shamed. Adam and Eve have just, they have just disobeyed him, and do you know who comes looking for them? God comes walking for them, calling out for them. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? He asked. And then, 
then he tells them this. Genesis 3.15. He looks at the serpent who has done this, who has brought this sin and shame into the world. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, that's like a prophetic thing that God is saying here. He says, from, the, from this woman's offspring, someone is going to come from this woman. And serpent, that someone is, you will bruise his heel. You will hurt him, serpent. You will hurt him. But what, what he's going to do is he's going to crush your head. And what Christians believe is that that person that God is talking about, the one who's going to make this shame right, who's going to renew our shame, is Jesus. It's Jesus. Because what Jesus does is his heel really is metaphorically bruised. He is wounded. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows who was well acquainted with grief. And you know why he was? He was for you. For people who are afraid and ashamed. What Jesus did is he took on your shame. They were gambling for his clothes at the cross. You know that? The soldiers were gambling. You know why they were gambling for his clothes? Because he wasn't wearing any. He became naked. He became naked and was put on the cross for all of the shame of the world to be put on him. And you know what happened next? Right. To be known and not loved is the worst thing in the world. His father turns his back on him. His father, Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus takes on the shame and is rejected by his father so that you would never be in your shame. So that no matter what has happened to you or no matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are, God has made a way for you to be known fully and loved. And when you know that, what this will begin doing is it will begin changing your relationships. A pastor, a friend of mine, told me this story. Um, his buddy was a pastor in Portland. And this man in his church was married to this woman. And this woman had the secret that she had been carrying with her for years in their marriage. When they were engaged, she had had an affair with another man. And she had never told her husband. They got married they had kids, they were living their life, and the shame of what she had done to him was just weighing on her. And she finally, one night in their bedroom, just broke down and lost it and was crying. She said, I have betrayed you. This is what I've done. And he gets up and he walks out the door and she just loses it. And he gets in his car and drives away and she is beside herself with grief that she has been known and she thinks that she's been rejected. But then the headlights of his car appeared again in the driveway and he got out and he's carrying a bag. And he walks into their bedroom where his wife is weeping on the bed. He says, I want you to get up and stand up in front of me right now. And he reaches in the bag and he pulls out a white bathrobe that he's like went to Target to buy. He pulls out this white bathrobe and he puts it on her and he says, every time that you come into our bedroom, I want you to wear this. 
because I want you to know that I see you as just as pure and beautiful as this white, perfect robe is because I love you. Thank you for telling me. It really hurts to know that, but I love you and you're mine. You know what Jesus, you know what Jesus does for you? Clothes you in his righteousness. We get a preview even of this in the text that we read. What does God do with Adam and Eve? He takes off the crappy clothes that they're wearing that they've been hiding and he gives them new clothes before he sends them out of the garden. He dresses them and that's what Christ does for you in your shame. He dresses you with his righteousness so that you can be fully known and loved. And so you know what that means? It means that you guys need to start getting to know each other. A lot of y'all are really lonely. And what you are made for is relationships and friendships. And you need each other. I'll close with this story. Um, this made the news a few years ago. There was a car, a mid-sized sedan, that went over a cliff, a 60-foot cliff. And every single person in the car survived with only a couple of bruises and scrapes. Do you know why? Because there were 14 people in the car. Okay, like maybe now you understand why they went over a cliff. It's probably a bad idea to put 14 people in a mid-sized sedan. But like, this baffled everyone. First off, like, why were you riding with all those people in your car? But also, how did you survive this fall? And all these scientists and engineers like, kind of like broke it down and they said, the reason that these people survived is because they were so tightly packed into the car that upon impact, they all acted as like shock absorbers. And they like absorbed the pain and the fall with each other. And, and furthermore, the engineer said, if there had only been, if there had been 11 people or less in the car, everyone would have died. They, were, they survived because they had people in the wreck with them. All right. You need people in your car. You do. You need people in it with you, in your shame who know you. And the reason that you can be known is because you, if you believe in Jesus, what that means is that God knows everything about you. And he has provided a way for you to be perfectly loved. Because he loves you. If you believe, that is for you. God is renewing our shame. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel that we are far worse off than we think that we are, and yet, in Christ, we may be far more loved than we ever imagined possible. May that be true for these students. May they know that. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.